Previously on Serial Dater. Robbie was another Tinder catch. I was definitely sure I was not feeling well, but was too nervous to cancel the date. Though most of my energy at this point was going towards trying not to faint, Robbie suggested we hang out between Christmas and New Year's, saying he'd like to come to Brighton. Robbie was the first guy in a long time who I had feelings for, and who I was now making out with, and who was now in my bedroom. But somewhere in there, Robbie drew a line in the sand just short of losing our underwear. I'm kind of a prude. I don't know what time it was exactly, but let's call it 2.30am, and I woke up shivering. I had another fucking fever. Falling ill wasn't just a biological coincidence, it was a character flaw, a sign that I was weak. It would have been kind of crazy for him to stay, and it would have been crazy to hold it against him, but it would have been romantic as hell. Mostly I'm just upset at my body for ruining our date. Nothing ruined. You should come to Dorset and spend the night. 2016 was only a few hours old, and I already had a third date, on the books with a guy I was pretty into. I have a strange relationship with optimism and pessimism. I don't know that I can really put myself in either camp. I'm much more of a hope for the best and fear the worst kind of guy, which is actually a really garbage way to be sometimes, because you have to cross so much space between your hopes and fears. Some of it is temporal. In the moment, I can often embrace the half-fullness of a glass and appreciate what an amazing invention a glass even is, enjoy its weight in my hand, marvel at the miracle of drinking water that doesn't kill you, but any minute, the glass will shatter into a thousand tiny pieces that will cut you, and also, that was the last clean drinking water on Earth. Sorry. So, I had unequivocal interest from Robbie in a third date. That was good. But figuring it out was getting complicated. The first five days of the new year were going to be a semi-mad scramble to finish my term papers for school. Then I'd be heading to Manchester for a Fulbright retreat. And after that, I'd planned a week-long trip to Scotland with Bill, another Fulbrighter who was spending his year at Oxford. After tooling around with Bill, I was rounding out the trip with three days in Edinburgh, staying with another one of my friends from my time as a teacher in Nice, Irish Clare, who had just gotten engaged. Yes, Irish Clare lives in Scotland, but she's from Belfast. Scottish Clare, naturally, was living in England. All told, though, I wasn't going to be back in southern England for weeks. But I liked Robbie. And the fact that he hadn't given up on me after Fevergate was making me think that maybe this thing had legs. He checked all the boxes. Attractive, funny, kind. And let's not forget, he was a good kisser. The one pressing, outstanding question was if we were compatible physically. A question that still lingered partially due to his self-proclaimed desire to go slowly in that department, which was fine. And partially due to my inability to not come down with the fever when I saw him, which was infuriating. I needed to know our compatibility, not with the patience of a scientist, but with the squirming urgency of a child whose Christmas presents are placed under the tree a week out and they're told not to touch. And when I realized that it would be much easier, and cheaper, to head to Dorset straight from London on my way back from Scotland, I asked Robbie what if instead of coming back to Brighton after my trip, I headed directly to Dorset. I was quick with disclaimers. You wouldn't have to look after me if you had to work. I could write in your apartment or at a coffee shop while you were in the office. And then in the evenings we could, you know, do what people do in the evenings. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I was pretty sure he would be weirded out by it, or find it over-eager or something. I'll often let myself get carried away with what my friends would call a shenanigan. Add on top of that that I had not yet proven that I could show up in real life and not come down with illness, and I was sort of setting myself up for him to decline, or even worse, to not respond at all. But instead, he agreed, enthusiastically even. 
So, throwing the smallest amount of caution to the wind, I booked my ticket from Edinburgh all the way back to Dorset. I finished up my final papers in the first days of January, filed a frankly cliché amount of paperwork to submit them, packed my bags, and then hopped on a train to the north. Oh, and regarding optimists and pessimists, there's one thing they can agree on when it comes to the fullness or emptiness of glasses. Pints should always be filled. I'm Charlie Beckerman, and make sure your pints are topped up for this episode of Serial Dater UK Edition. It's just Episode 3, The Highlands. Manchester was a fun interlude. I hadn't seen most of the Fulbrighters since orientation, and it was nice to touch base with them again. We did a bunch of very Manchester-y things, including visiting the Graphene Institute and going to their Natural History Museum. We ate curry and visited their medieval libraries. We walked past the statue of Abraham Lincoln that was erected after the Civil War. We drank ales and lagers and avoided falling into any of the Victorian canals that carve up the city. It was a good week. The last day of the meeting, there was news that recent flooding had shut down a section of the tracks that Bill and I were supposed to take to Scotland. We went to the train station in Manchester and spoke to a ticket agent who gave us what had to be one of the craziest reroutings I had ever seen. I posted a picture of the tickets in the itinerary on the site. I'd been to Scotland once before. After finishing my year of teaching in Nice, France, I'd planned an ambitious solo tour of Scotland. But due to some last-minute professional, and emotional, snafus, followed by a dark night of the soul on the first night of my trip in Edinburgh, I ended up trading a rugged, solitary, adventurous trip to the far reaches of Scotland for a comfortable couple of days at a granny's house, Charlotte's granny, actually, in the middle of Yorkshire farmland. It was a lovely weekend, but ever since, Scotland had remained the great unconquered land. Bill, on the other hand, had visited Scotland for a conference earlier in the fall and had immediately proclaimed that it was his spirit animal. It was with this sense of adventure that we welcomed our pre-dawn departure, made it to Glasgow, and boarded our diesel train from Queen Street Station to Fort William. As the train made its way out of the city and into the mountains, our jaws hit the floor. It was stunning. I... Okay, actually, I had a much longer bit in here describing in far too much detail how amazing the trip was, but it technically is not about dating, and I'm trying to stay more or less on point, so here are the top five best things about the trip into the Highlands. One, the landscape. Two, the Instagrams. Three, trolley on the train, complete with a guy who asked, anything off the trolley, gents? Scotland is real-life Harry Potter, and nothing will convince me otherwise. Four, the four-legged hoofed creatures that scurried away from the tracks as our train clattered through. Five, the vegetarian haggis I found in the middle of nowhere, which was delicious. At some point while we were up in the highlands, Bill opened up Tinder. Just to see. And I felt somewhat obligated to check out my own Tinder. And Grinder. Understandably, as far away as the women were for Bill, the men were much farther afield for me. Still, I can't deny that there was some heady fantasy to encountering someone way up there in the highlands, even if it was just for a night. I should state for the record that throughout this whole time, Robbie, who you may remember had historically been a slow texter, was suddenly very present. In what I look back on as our sweetest electronic communication, we spent a couple of hours trying to one-up the other with Scotland puns. I would give anything to share some of these with you, and by all rights, I should have them. But for some reason, the SMS log on my phone jumps from December 31st, 2015 to January 18th, 2016. 
lost are all of my Scottish puns with Robbie, as well as most of the rest of our conversation. It's a cruel loss, since there's other stuff in there that I would have liked to have read, but the Scotland puns are what I miss the most. The real kicker is that I think I know where they went. I was trying to clear out my phone in order to get more room for pictures of mountains. Quick aside, while I was getting together the photos for this episode, head to the website to check out some good ones. I came across a screenshot I took of some of the puns. I found them, like, literally a couple of hours before I had to upload the episode, so I didn't have time to get them read by a professional, so it's just me. Robbie. How's it Glasgowing? Me. That was thirsoly disgusting. Robbie. I think it was a sterling effort. Me. I can't keep up with you. I've hit a kirk wall. Robbie. It's okay. I done blame you for being terrible at this. Me. But seriously, doing this while I can't make out with you is infuriating. And then when he didn't respond right away, sorry, didn't mean to perth a damper on things. I feel like we went on for kind of a long time after that, but maybe I should be happy that my digital archives cut out before we got too Rococo with the wordplay. After an epic, checks notes, 42 hours in the Highlands, Bill and I headed back down to Glasgow, where we spent several days with Marina and Sarah, two Fulbrighters who were living there. Glasgow is a magical city. I can't quite pick out what it is about it that made me feel this way. I had spent a couple of nights in Glasgow on my earlier mostly abandoned visit to Scotland, and had found it surprisingly warm. The two women who worked at the front desk of the hostel I stayed at, after checking me in, invited me to the pub downstairs for a pint. It was no less inviting this time. From its adorable loop of a subway system, complete with what feels like 0.8-scale London tube trains, to the delightfully bizarre Kelvin Grove Museum, to the laid-back bustle of Sucky Hall Street, the whole place has a feeling of itself as a city, a place where people live and work and enjoy themselves. It reminds me a lot of San Francisco in the 1990s when I was growing up there, from the grid that's casually draped over the hills to the grounded, easygoing, and hard-partying citizens. I had looked up what concerts were going to be on during our time in the city, and had come across a group by the name of Tongues, who we ended up going to see at King Tut's Wawa Hut. A momentous meeting, indeed. Bill's decision to engage with the dating apps, which had started mostly as a lark in the Highlands, had turned into a full-fledged sortie into dating land. On our last night in Glasgow, while Marina, Sarah, and I went to see Tongues, Bill ended up going on a date with a woman who grew up on the Isle of Skye. He texted us after as we tried to meet up. You guys, Bill wrote, I think I'm in love. Also, I've lost one of my gloves. When we found Bill, he was wandering the streets, looking for his lost glove, but also kind of besotted. It was sort of adorable, even if I was a little bit jealous. All of which is to say, this is how I came to be on Tinder the next day, as I was sitting on the train at Glasgow Central Station about to leave for Edinburgh, swiping this way and that. I had one foot out of the city when I matched with a young man named Calvin, who had piercing blue eyes, a reddish beard, and a reluctance to smile despite seemingly having just heard something quite entertaining. Well, I guess I'm going to have to be the funny one, because you're clearly the pretty one, I typed as the train pulled out of the station. It felt like a bit of a throwaway at that point, a shot in the dark that would probably go unanswered. It's a little crazy to think how different my life might be now if it had.
My train was already sprinting its way across the Scottish night when he responded. Damn, he said. I was going to open with that, because you're cute or something. And by something, I mean you're cute for sure. Ah, shucks, I wrote back, affecting my full American folksy charm. We can argue about it sometime. No, you're prettier. No, you're prettier. How's your night going? Ha, <laughs> it sounds like a land in tears, he replied. I'm good, man. Moved last week, so I've been unpacking all my crap today. Really wild night, obviously. What about yourself? This all took place over the course of a few hours. By the time I replied to this message, I was firmly ensconced on Irish Claire's couch in Edinburgh, snuggled up with a glass of wine and Claire's Irish setter, Lad. Just hanging out with my friend, catching up, I said. I'm afraid to ask. Where are you? You're afraid to ask? Ha! <laughs> I'm in Glasgow. Is that okay? <laughs> yes, though I've just left. I'm in Edinburgh now, and even worse, I live in the South. The South? Ew. Like England, I know. Why would you do this to me? Did I ask where in England you reside? You can dare. Brighton, literally as far away as you can get from Scotland without getting wet. We used to be so close. I was in Brighton two years ago for my birthday. It was great. So great that the photos I took were Instagram worthy. So, is that permission to stalk your Instagram? My profile's linked to my Tinder. I'll just assume you've had a wee creep already. Peace sign emoji. Ha. <laughs> yeah, it still felt polite to ask. He had several pictures of him out and about in New York. I told him I used to live there. Why would you leave? He asked. I left to follow my dreams of being a writer. It sort of worked, but my folks live there, so I go back a lot. That's really interesting that you're a writer. He said. You any good? <laughs> right to the quick, eh? I hope I'm not awful. I'm largely unpublished, though. But enough about me. What do you do? And that was it for the evening. I spent the next day with Lad while Claire went to work. We went for a walk, went to the shop. I did some writing. Lad did some panting. As evening approached and we waited for Claire to get home, I followed up with Calvin. Well, I don't know if you've decided to be wise and leave things well enough alone, or if you just have a normal life and are busy, but you seem excellent. And if you were amenable, I'd love to hit you up next time I'm up north. Slash, if you ever find yourself in Brighton or London, definitely drop me a line. For this first 24 hours, I mostly succeeded in keeping my expectations appropriately low for what could possibly come of engaging with yet another guy who lived far away, satirically far at this point. Yes, he was terribly attractive and delightfully clever, definitely some of the best Tinder chat I'd ever had, but any real hopes I had of anything coming of this were about as real as, say, my hope that I might run into Oprah whenever I'm in Chicago. Like, it could happen, but probably won't. But if it does, I am there for it. But as I'd come to learn over the course of knowing Calvin, giving up on him was hard, as he'd pop his head back up when I'd least expect it. My message to him at 5.50pm was a clear jumping-off point. It required no response, but also gave him a gentlemanly out. Sounds good, or I definitely will, were all that were required for a graceful exit. Instead, at 7.30, when Claire and I had decided that our evening's activity would be a viewing of Harry Potter 6, my phone chirped with a new message from him. It would be smart considering the long distance, but I'm not that smart. Winky face emoji. He said, I'll just have to come see you, so I can read some of your material and decide whether you are any good. I'm sure you're a great writer, just for the record. I'm only taking this to be true by your immaculate punctuation. Also, you called me excellent. I call people excellent. Oh my god, I replied, 
We could be so gross together. That's a good thing in case you weren't sure. Ha, <laughs> fuck. We are disgusting. When'd you head back south? Monday. Why? Fancy a trip to Edinburgh? It was a one-hour train ride between the two Scottish cities, so not a completely wild suggestion, but it wasn't just popping down to the pub, either. When he didn't reply right away, I overzealously followed up, sorry, clearly pushing my luck. He wrote back just before midnight. Don't be so preposterous, he texted. Of course I'd come to Edinburgh. Would you have any spare time this weekend? I mean, if you came, I'd make time, I wrote. But I agree that it's all a bit crazy. More crazy than me travelling to Brighton for a date? He asked. Point to Calvin. We chatted well past midnight, discussed siblings, architecture, emojis. Calvin had his Instagram account linked to his Tinder profile, but I did not. And the experience of having shared my Instagram with Kieran, only to have him rather quickly find my entire online presence, had taught me to tread somewhat lightly here. On the other hand, his last name was in his Instagram account name, and it felt unfair for me to know his last name when he didn't know mine. So, I warned him, I can tell you my Instagram name, but then basically you'll find me and all the work that I've done online. I gave it to him. Well, I'll have a wee creep for sure. For context, this was all taking place at one in the morning. Writer? Serial data? Has more than one .com page? This is at a first glance. He texted cryptically. Yeah, the podcast is probably the biggest share. That's just a lot of information out there, I wrote. I assume you also have a podcast that I can listen to where you share intimate details of your romantic life? Oh, they made a film about my love life, actually, he replied. It's called Home Alone 3. If it becomes important later, you had me at Home Alone 3. I'm not going to listen to the podcasts. Not because they'll be boring. They might be, I interjected. But anything worth knowing, I'm sure I'll find out from you. Or whatever. We kept chatting for a bit, but he won flirt text roulette by signing off first, just after 1am. Damn it, I wrote. I was going to try and beat you to sleep so as to avoid worries about boring you. <laughs> Imperfections are what make us perfect. Good night. I put my phone aside and tucked into bed, my head fizzing with the magic of high-quality flirtation. A few minutes later, my phone buzzed. I wanted to hear your voice, Calvin wrote. Curiosity. So episode one. Scroll along halfway and I am disgusting is what you say. <laughs> I wrote back, the fizzing having upgraded from soda fountain fizz to arson at a fireworks factory. Complete satisfaction, he said. I'll get the rest later for context. I cannot for the life of me think of where that is, I wrote back, eternally the teenage girl who can't hang up first. But I'm glad you're satisfied and are still talking to me. Also, podcast sidebar, I still have no idea what part of the first podcast he's referring to. And then, for a whole day, nothing. Claire worked all day while I attempted to do some writing and had staring contests with Lad. Mid-afternoon, I started chatting with a guy on Tinder named Paul, an Englishman living in Edinburgh who, while not as kick-you-in-the-nuts-hot and witty as Calvin, was in the correct city and seemed to be interested in maybe meeting up. I was going out with Claire and a few of her bridesmaids-to-be to celebrate the engagement, but said maybe I'd meet up with him a little bit later. The girls and I went to a pub and had a few bottles of bubbly, but by 11 o'clock Claire was pretty cooked, she'd been working six-day weeks, and impulsively and at Paul's beckoning, I hopped in a cab to meet him at C.C. Bloom's, a gay Edinburgh mainstay. It was pretty uncharacteristic of me, and I felt good about carpeing the DM, 
Here I was, a real grown gay man, going to meet another gay man, maybe just for a drink, maybe for a snog, maybe for something else. I got to C.C. Bloom's, and it was what you'd expect of a popular gay bar on a Saturday night, packed to the gills. It was hovering just above freezing outside, but people spilled out of the front door in the two large open windows so they could smoke. Inside, there was an upstairs and a downstairs, both rammed with people. I texted Paul to let him know I was there, to let him know what I was wearing so he could recognize me, to ask where he was. I did a circuit upstairs, I did a circuit downstairs, I waited by the front door. I looked in the bathrooms. I messaged him again. I did another circuit upstairs and downstairs. After 45 minutes, I left, grabbing a bus back to Claire's. Another gay, a better gay, would have said, fuck it, and gotten a drink at Bloom's and just started talking to literally anybody. It was a bar filled with gay Scotsmen. What the fuck else was I waiting for? Instead of reaching out and touching anyone, though, I tucked my tail and left. It's hard to describe what I was feeling right then, but I think I have this idea about myself that I am disposable. Hearing a no thank you hurts, but having someone say they'll meet me only to have them vanish makes me feel subhuman, like garbage. My final message to Paul was that sad, somber face emoji with the downcast eyes, a slight frown. As ever, these deep, dark feelings have more to do with my own history than whether or not Paul was a jerk or not. My sort of bursting out of the closet in high school, followed by my inability to find a boyfriend, has led me to believe that I'm just not very good at being gay. This logic is an armoring of sorts. If I'm merely untalented, then it isn't something I'm specifically doing wrong that's keeping me single. But of course, this feels foolish even as I say it, because of course it was still a failing. I was identifying myself with the failure. Anyway, I'll get to more of this later. The takeaway here is that I was feeling shitty on a deep existential level. What made it all the crazier was that I didn't even know this guy. Why should I give a shit about what this stranger thinks of me? Why did his jerkitude make me feel like such garbage? I woke up the next morning, my last full day in Scotland, to a message from Paul. So sorry, my battery died. I was downstairs. I had let myself get so upset that I had no recourse to his more or less reasonable reply. Though, Jesus, Paul, don't you think you could have sent me a, hey, my phone is about to die, but we're downstairs by the bar, text or something? To make matters worse, or let's not say worse, let's say harder. That day was Claire's one full day off, and she had a bunch of wedding tasks that she had to tackle. We went with her bridesmaids to the Edinburgh Botanical Gardens, one of the prospective venues, which were lovely in their wintry sparseness, and the reception spaces were actually very pretty. Still, putting my full energy into celebrating romance, even my good friend's long-awaited and much-deserved romance, took effort. After the botanical gardens, we headed down to a street full of charity shops, used clothing stores, 
which apparently in the UK are known for carrying a random assortment of wedding gowns. It was more for a laugh than anything else, but then Claire tried on a dress that fit her alarmingly well for off the rack, and which she bought on impulse for a hundred pounds. Even if I don't use it, she said, I can sell it on eBay. To my recollection, it was right around then that I finally fished my phone out and texted Calvin again. Really regretting not asking you to come to Edinburgh. I didn't really expect much at this point, but maybe if Calvin was up for a chat, it would lift my spirits a bit. He responded immediately. On Friday, I was planning to. Woke up on Saturday to snow. Had to cover a shift at the pub because staff couldn't travel. Oh, man, I replied. Seducing a Scottish barman would definitely be a fantasy that I'd like to play out. The girls chat me up a lot. Would welcome the male attention. You must break a lot of hearts. But girl hearts, so whatever. He asked me what I was up to, and I told him about the wedding and the venues and the dresses. I'm standing in as her faux fiancé. Her faux fiancé? <laughs> you can decide. Being the writer and all. I was going to say you'd make a fiancé. And now I've sort of said it anyway. <laughs> At some point in here, it might have behooved me to let him know that any and all marriage proposals were going to be seriously considered. Wait, I said instead. Did you just propose? Sorry, now I've made things weird. I think I made it weird, and you went with it. We are truly repulsive. Isn't that all we're looking for? Someone to be weird with, I wrote. Weird as in making horrible puns and jokes, not like ball gags and dog outfits. Not that I judge. See, I'm all about gags, so we might have a problem. Do you leave tonight or tomorrow? Tomorrow, I said. Trains are running as normal now. Oh yeah? Somewhere in here, I had a quick consultation with Claire about how abandoned she'd feel if I went on a date. But after a weekend full of drinking and wedding venueing, she bestowed her blessing. I could get into Edinburgh this evening, if you fancied food or a drink with me. Calvin texted. I absolutely do. Or a walk. You absolutely do. Then it's a date. I'm trying to keep from squeeing out loud, because it's not that manly. Squee away, my friend. Break down gender norms. Burn your bra. But not your sports bra because it's expensive. I'm done now. Please don't stop on my account. Fuck the patriarchy. Tell me your pronouns. Suddenly, things were looking up. My basic understanding of Edinburgh's topography goes something like this. You have the castle at the top of the high street, which sort of makes a ridge leading up to the castle, presumably good for fighting off hordes and tutors and stuff. Then, on another rise parallel to the high street is Prince's Street, which is where there are a lot of the main shops and department stores, as well as C.C. Bloom's, sort of off in a corner. Nestled in the valley between the two is Waverly Station. It's actually sort of nice. Anytime you're rushing for a departing train, you're always heading downhill. Contrast this with Brighton, whose train station is on a rise above the city. More often than not, I'd board trains there, winded and sweaty. The last few messages I'd gotten from Calvin were that he was doing at six, his phone was probably going to die on the train, unless there were power outlets, and then a follow-up message saying his phone was definitely going to die. I texted him a few minutes later saying we should just meet outside the Boots Pharmacy in the station, but I didn't hear back from him. The bus I'd taken to meet him was running slightly behind schedule, and I spent the better part of the journey preparing myself for not finding him there, and then eventually getting a message saying, I waited for you for seven minutes. I didn't see you, so I went home. But as I rushed down into the station from the street and turned the corner, there he was, leaning up against the side of the shop. 
He was wearing a black wool trench coat that went down to his knees, the collar upturned, a green sweater underneath. He had the uneasy air of a millennial whose phone has died and doesn't know what to do with his hands. I suppose that now is as good a time as any to make note of the fact that Calvin was 24 years old, almost 25 at this point, to my own 32. Yes, I recognize that this is not an insubstantial age gap. I know people who, say, would never date someone under 26, and I get why they have those rules, but maybe I just know myself well enough to know that any such limitation would be useless in the face of real, palpable, kinetic attraction. Sometimes I feel like what I'm looking for in men is such an ephemeral moving target that imposing stringent age limitations would have just been kidding myself. Besides, 24 falls within the half-year age plus 7 formula, so everything's fine, calm down. I walked up to Calvin. He was taller than I'd expected, even though Tinder doesn't require people to list their height. 6'1", maybe? I can't really explain how or why, but I thought it shifted the dynamic a bit. Hi there, I said. Hello, he said. I can't believe you're here. I sort of can't believe it either. We should probably get a drink. Colors in the dark, the only We made our way out of the station. I was as nervous as I was excited. Do you guys have improv comedy over here? I asked. He nodded. Have you ever heard of yes and? He shook his head. So basically, in improv, they have this rule that you never want to contradict the other person because it grinds the scene to a halt. And so the rule is, no matter what the other person says, you can't say no. So if your partner says, hey, you're my sister, you can't say, no, I'm your mother. You have to say, yes, and I'm also a serial killer. He thought for a moment. If they said, you're my sister, could you say, yes, and you're also my mother? Exactly, I said, though that improv scene might get a little intense. Anyway, I just feel like we're yes-anding right now. I felt the sudden urge to put my foot in my mouth. We'd only spent 45 seconds together so far, and the whole time he'd been giving me a kind of sidelong glance. The kind of look you'd give someone who'd started a cell phone conversation through their headphones, but you weren't entirely sure that they weren't talking to you. A series of escalators followed by a flight of stairs that twisted between buildings led us up to the Royal Mile, the street which leads up to the castle, which, at 6 o'clock on a Sunday in January, was pretty empty. We walked past the towering hulk of St. Giles Cathedral, sporting that dark, sooty exterior that has always made me feel like Scotland might be in an alternate universe. The only stores that were open were shops hawking souvenirs, and even those were starting to drag their racks of postcards and key rings inside. My experience heretofore in the UK had been that one never needed to try too hard to find a pub, but it took us a second. I had to resort to looking one up. We landed at an Irish pub called Finnegan's Wake on Victoria Street, just down from the Royal Mile. It was a big space, one that seemed to envision hordes of tourists. At this point in the evening, at this time of the year, though, it seemed to echo in its emptiness. On the other hand, the place had some very good student specials on a beer I'd never heard of. What's John Smith's? I asked Calvin. He gave me a quizzical smile. That's what the old men at the pub drink, he said. That's what my dad drinks. I ordered one anyway. It was only £2.70. Calvin got a Guinness. The only choices for seating at Finnegan's Wake were high stools, which to my mind increased the possibility of me falling down, 
or high booths in a smaller side room near the front door. The lighting was a bit brighter over there, but we felt a little bit less like we were the only ones in the bar. What did we talk about? I can remember bits and snatches. A better memoirist slash podcaster would have journaled about it later to try and record all the details, the play-by-play. We talked about our families, our childhoods. We covered uni and what we'd been doing since, me having a bit more time to cover than him. We made fun of me being an old man. He told me how he helps his dad out with the paperwork for his electrician business, and how the only people in his family who knew he was gay was one of his two sisters. He polished off his Guinness before I'd even drunk half my John Smith's, and he headed back to the bar. He returned with another Guinness and a Jack and Coke. Doing okay there? I asked. Yeah. He quaffed down the top third of the Guinness. I'm just nervous. He took another long pull from the Guinness and then poured the entire Jack and Coke into the Guinness. What the fuck did you just do? I asked. He took a satisfied sip of his concoction. It's good, he said. Want to try? I gave him a skeptical look and took a sip. It weirdly tasted like a thick, creamy Dr. Pepper. Okay, I conceded. That is pretty good. So what's making you so nervous that you needed two more drinks? You? He said, smiling. He was doing the thing where his eyes seemed to be just darting away from mine. I leaned in and kissed him on the cheek. I can't believe you just did that. He said. Oh, sorry, I said, the very earliest sensations of mortification creeping into my chest. No, I'm glad you did it. He said quickly. I just wasn't expecting it. Next time, I'll give you some more warning, I said. He smiled. You don't have to. We each had one more beer at Finnegan's Wake before heading back outside into the frigid Scottish night. We'd walked maybe ten feet down the block away from the pub when Calvin pulled me into a doorway. Could it have been a church doorway? And kissed me on the mouth. Fuck, was he good at kissing. We might have been there 30 seconds, we might have been there 30 minutes, I'm not sure. But as we broke and we looked at each other, all I could think was, I am so screwed. You're pretty good at that, I said. You too, he said. Across the street from Finnegan's Wake was a staircase that led to a walkway called the Upper Bow, which took us back up to the Royal Mile and we wandered up towards the castle. Which is the kind of thing you do in Britain. Turns out Eddie Azard was right. We got tons of them, because you think we all live in castles. And we do all live in castles. We all got a castle each. We're up to here with fucking castles. (laughs) We just long for a bungalow or something. If you haven't seen the Edinburgh Castle lit at night, then it might be hard to impress upon you just how impressive it looks. It's 13th century walls lit by 21st century lights. I'd actually seen the castle before, in the daytime. And even I wasn't prepared for how stunning it was. My knee-jerk reaction was to, obviously, Instagram it. As we emerged onto the esplanade, I pulled my phone out of my pocket and steadied myself to take a photo. But right as I pressed the shutter, something hit the side of my face, warm, hairy, about the speed of a drunk bumblebee, and messed up the shot. This fucker just kissed me.
Yes, I know that we had just been making out outside of the pub, but that had been different. A swirl of hormones and panicked lust. We had been famished and had scarfed one another down. This was way, way worse. It was unbidden and in its own way asexual, and therefore a purely romantic gesture. It was sweet and it was generous. There was no reason to do it, which made it all the more lovely and inconceivable. If Home Alone 3 had been where I started to fall, that peck on the cheek was where I hit the ground and smashed into a million pieces. I didn't know whether to punch him or kiss him back. I must have restrained myself from doing either and instead took the picture correctly, because I have the well-taken one as well as the fucked up one on my hard drive. We wandered towards the front of the castle, which was closed, though there were a smattering of other sightseers milling about. From there, we went to look out at the view of Edinburgh from what I suppose was technically a rampart, a wall that came up to about waist height, sloping down as it went inward, designed, I suppose, to make it easy for people to fire arrows down upon English armies. We gazed out over the view for a few moments, and then, having distanced ourselves from the other tourists, we started making out again. I leaned back against the parapet, which, as useful as it might have been against armies, was even better for kissing. I put my butt on the sloped top of the wall and stuck my feet straight out, racing against the stone wall. He put his legs on either side of mine and leaned into me, so that my back stretched out over the city. It was 32 degrees, and we must have stayed out there for 20 or 30 minutes. It's one of the finest memories I have, the city of Edinburgh stretched out below us, the slight fear of falling off the wall, all while this tall, handsome, clever man kissed me incredibly well. As we left the esplanade, he took my hand in his, and our fingers interlocked with a perfect fit. It's a strange thing to say, but for all the guys I've made out with, or had sex with, I've only held hands with a few. It's a much more intimate gesture, I suppose, than actual sex, which is kind of fucked up, but well, there it is. Some fingers are too narrow, some people's fingers are too fidgety, palms get sweaty, people get restless. Not a problem with Calvin. His hands were warm and dry, and our fingers fit together perfectly. His hands felt the way that fresh bread just out of the oven smells. Exiting the esplanade, we turned right and headed down Castle Wind North, a staircase, to Johnston Terrace. As we came down the steps, I recognized the neon red sign for the Castle Rock Hostel, where I'd stayed nearly ten years earlier and had my long, dark night of the soul, and got so depressed I mostly cancelled my Scotland trip. I tried thinking about what my 22-year-old self would have said if I'd tried to explain that, in this very same spot, I would be having one of the best nights of my life. We continued down Castlewind South to a pedestrian area called Grassmarket Green, which was made up mostly of cobblestones, the green I suppose long ago covered over. We kept chatting about everything and nothing. The cold drove us inside again, this time to the White Hart Inn, a much cozier and traditional pub. We took over a low booth, stacking our coats on one of the benches and then sitting side by side on the other bench. Over new pints, he told me about how he went to school for engineering, but finished unsure if he still wanted to do anything with it. He asked me about my, quote, two-dot-com pages, and I spent a lot of energy downplaying how big a deal that was. Maybe too much. At some point, we started playfully quarreling about who was more attractive. You're the one who's got those crazy eyes, I said. He turned his head away from me. Oh, yeah? He said to the wall. 
What color are they? I laughed more at the ease of the question than anything else. Bright fucking blue, I said. I closed my eyes. What color are mine? He confessed he didn't know. I opened them, saying, it's okay, they kind of change color depending on the light, which, to be fair, they sort of do. He stared into my eyes, and even though I knew he was just checking out the color, it was hard not to feel like he was turning me inside out, and that it was distinctly pleasurable. Yeah, they're kind of green now. A straight couple came in and sat down at the next table, and asked if they could stack their coats on ours. They were American, and seemed pleasantly surprised to run into a fellow countryman. I asked where they were from. North Carolina? They said, their twang subtle but definitely evident. We chatted briefly, Calvin sitting back as if he didn't speak our language and so had nothing to contribute. They were traveling through, only in Edinburgh for a night. They went to the bar to get drinks, and I sat back and ended up sort of half-leaning on Calvin. Your voice changed, he said. You sounded more American. No, I didn't, I said, punching at him playfully. Yes, you did, he said, delighted. Your A's get longer, and flatter. Well, do I sound normal again now? Apple, banana, Abercrombie. He smiled and said nothing. I don't know why, I certainly don't normally do this on first dates, but I fished my phone out of my pocket, turned on the front-facing camera, and took a couple of shots from under the table. What are you doing? He asked. Nothing. It's not the greatest angle, but somehow Calvin still manages to look pretty good. I look possibly homeless, but that's another matter. He grabbed my phone out of my hand and held it up high, snapping off photos. There are four pictures, one of him still getting the right angle, another that is one sort of normal one, one where I'm reaching for the camera and he's making a kind of panicked, oh no, face, and one where I've grabbed the camera and we're both laughing. I think I probably kissed him again after this. At some point, he noticed me picking at my hangnails. I'm pretty tame as far as vices go, and the only one that I seem unable to curb with any meaningful permanence is picking at my cuticles. There's a term for that, you know, Calvin said, rubbing the dry pad of his thumb over my abused hangnail. I can't remember what it is, but there's a word for it. Okay, fine. For you, I'll stop, I said. As I leaned into him, his hands on mine, I had the crazy notion that if I concentrated hard enough, I could just slide my atoms in amongst his. My inner editor considered cutting this out for a pure sentimental cheese factor, but it was real, and I'm trying to be real here, so sorry about it. When Calvin had gotten off the train back at six... He'd expressed a faint desire to find some food, but between our pints, stumbling around the city, and making out, we had managed to forget to get him anything to eat. We were getting close to midnight, which was when the last train back to Glasgow departed. We could get a hotel room, I ventured boldly, recklessly, not really thinking through my own logistics. He demurred. I've worked tomorrow, he said. I'll just have to take a trip down to Brighton. We headed back towards the train station via a circuitous route taking various winding passageways that offered no end to secluded, and not-so-secluded, makeout spots. At one point, we emerged onto a walkway above a curved street, nobody else visible in any direction. I protested about not wanting to walk back to the station. All right, I'll carry you, he said, and turned, offering his back to me. Perhaps a soberer version of myself would have laughed at the offer, but in that moment, all I wanted was to be closer to him, to be right up against him. So I climbed on. He lifted me up piggyback and started carrying me down the street as if I were a child. We made it about 50 feet before I started nibbling on his ear. Well, that's not helping, he said, grinning as he put me down. We made out some more.
We finally made it into the main hall of the station to find that we still had another 20 minutes until Calvin's train left. I started rattling off what food options I thought might be nearby, but without saying anything, Calvin grabbed my hand and dragged me back out of the station. We found a stairway that led between Market Street, which ran alongside the station, and Cockburn Street, which wound up towards the Royal Mile. Present-day research has revealed that this staircase is called Flesh Market Close, which feels a little on the nose for reasons that will soon become apparent. I had no idea where he was taking us, but as I think I've already demonstrated, I was down for whatever. Two-thirds of the way up the staircase was a deep-cut alcove where an anonymous service door looked like it was rarely, if ever, opened. There, he threw me up against the wall and started kissing me again. I debated whether or not to include this next part, so let me just say that I probably would have left it out, except for the fact that it sort of plays into what happens later. I would have been content to keep making out with him right up until the moment his train left. A more romantic, carefree, and budget-unconscious person would have bought a ticket to Glasgow just for the opportunity to keep making out with him beyond the ticket barriers. I had zero expectations of anything more than that going on in that alcove off of Flesh Market Close. Calvin pulled away from me for a moment and looked down and started fumbling at my belt. Before I really knew what was going on, he had me inside his mouth. I've tried to think about what went through my head at that moment, no pun intended, I think. Surprise, certainly. Pleasure, obviously. Exhilaration, definitely. Confusion, probably. What did it mean? Was this a manifestation of feelings or of lust? Or both? Also, I was no longer kissing him, and while this was definitely not a disappointment, it was different. After a minute, I pulled him up, put myself away, started kissing him again, had us trade places, and then returned the favor. If we were going to get arrested for lewd and lascivious behavior, I wanted us to be equal actors. Instead, after a few moments, we heard voices coming up the steps towards us. Calvin grabbed my shoulders and pulled me up, looking toward the noise. We readjusted ourselves as best we could, all the while giggling. As the voices passed us on the steps, two Spanish-speaking backpackers, they struck me as South American, though that is based on nothing, we brushed past them, laughing out loud as we fled, nearly falling down the steps. It's the joy of the journey It's the song that you gave me We still had not found Calvin anything to eat, and with only 10 minutes now before his train, our options were slim. At the station, the only thing left open was McDonald's, where he bought a burger and some fries and insisted on buying me a bottle of water. We grabbed the food and raced down toward the platform, arriving a minute or two before the train departed. We kissed once more at the ticket barrier, though less ardently in the hollow, unforgiving light of the station, less indecently under the gaze of the Scotrail dispatcher standing 20 feet away, and then he was through the gate and gave me a smile and a wave from the train door before popping inside. I waited for the train to depart, just to make sure nothing went wrong, or more honestly to make sure he didn't have a last-minute change of heart and decided he wanted to stay. But right on time, the whistle blew, the doors closed, and the train rolled out of the station and disappeared into the night. As I walked from the station to the bus stop, as I rode the bus back to Claire's neighborhood, as I stepped off the bus and made my way to her flat, I realized I felt like I was floating on air. This was going to be my realization for the next several weeks, that every last cliché you'd ever heard about falling in love was 100% true. This was it. My life had turned a corner. 
All the bad dates, the awkward hookups, and guys who in one way or another had turned me down or left me hanging, including fucking sorry my phone died Paul. They were all leading up to this, and that made it all totally worth it. I thought about seeing Calvin again. I wouldn't even have called it fantasy. It felt too real, too certain. It was just an anticipation of the inevitable next step. We would hang out again. He made it sound like it could happen soon. And then we would hang out again after that. And then, at some point, one of us would move to where the other was. I had known a couple of people who'd said, I knew I was going to marry him slash her the night I met them. And I'd always poo-pooed the idea as kind of sentimental. Now, I was completely on board. I suddenly felt very light and free, relieved and excited for what was coming. When I got in, Claire was half awake, a Netflix series on autoplay on her laptop next to her in bed. Did you have fun? She asked. Claire, I said, I am in so much trouble. Aw, why? I like him so much. I could almost see the hearts and stars and birds fluttering as they circled my head. I think it was the best date of my life. I went to bed, my head feeling like I'd snorted pop rocks, but in a pleasant way. It was almost 1 a.m. I woke up six hours later to see Claire off to school. I'll probably be back before you know it, I told her. I packed up my stuff, stripped the sheets off my bed, took Lad out for one last piddle, got on the bus and headed back to Waverly Station to catch my train back to England. In the light of day, the station seemed like the right side up of last night's upside down. My head still felt light and floaty from the night before, I boarded the virgin train that would whisk me back to London. I sort of melodramatically acknowledged that my life would now be separated into the time leading up to meeting Calvin and the time after it. Even as the logic center of my brain did its best to try and assert with a straight face that I may never see him again, and that that was okay, that the night had been magical in and of itself. The rest of my brain, my whole body, was sparkling with the possibility of whatever was going to come next with Calvin. Even as I embraced the new Calvin order as made possible by all the shite that had come before it, I was unable to appreciate on any critical level the contrast between the depths I'd been plunged to the night before by being sort of stood up, and the soaring high I was now feeling. And I know that I'm not alone in this. I've had plenty of friends suffer the blows of a date not working out, or the joys of having one go so well. Why do we all need this feedback from people, from strangers, before we can feel good about ourselves? But as this question alighted me, there was something else kicking around awkwardly in my mind. Something I had let go of entirely the night before. But in the brutal light of morning, I had to acknowledge and face head on. I'm curious if you all have remembered it. I was heading back south, leaving Scotland, that magical land that had stolen my heart. But I wasn't headed back to Brighton. No, I was heading, as I'd planned two weeks and a lifetime earlier, straight to Dorset for my third date with Robbie that very evening next time on Serial Dater.
If you find yourself caught in love, say a prayer to the man above. Thank him for everything you know. You should thank him for every breath you blow. If you find Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. Editorial help from Olivia Wolfgang Smith, Fatih Ahmed, and Anna Marquardt. Music by Tongues. Go buy and listen to their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. For more information, check them out at www.tonguesmusic.com. Calvin, played by Callum Barkley, Robbie, played by Matthew Hall, and Paul, played by Alistair James Murden. You can find links to more of their work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. There you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. If you find yourself caught in love, say a prayer to the mind above. But if you don't listen to the voices, then my friend, you'll soon run out of choices. What a pity. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SerialDaterPod. Email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, and scratching the URL into the wall of the bathroom stall at your favorite bar, or more effectively by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people find it. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. And of course, none of this would have been possible without the generosity of the US-UK Fulbright Commission, which just goes to show that no good deed goes unpunished. This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characteristics have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated.